so as, as Marco said, um, um, I, I have a, this, or the specific talk will be part of, um, or is part of a bigger project on mundane technoscience, so different ways to think technoscience beyond what we call its core institutions, um, scientific research centers, whether they are in the university or outside. So I'm trying to think technoscience outside of this context. Uh, a part, though, of this project is also about the discussion between technoscience produced in this alternative context and technoscience taking place in these more formal institutions. And I'm doing some work on psychiatric epigenetics in order to be able, some anthropological work actually, in order to be able to trace this traffic between <coughs> more formal techno-scientific settings and then less formal uh, mundane um, sites where techno-science is produced. Um, and uh, this, this specific talk is, um, is part of an ongoing ethnography, so it's um, far from finished, and it's actually the first time that I try to put together materials collected through a longer period of work with uh, specific communities, which I mentioned in the talk. And um, I look forward, actually, to your comments um, and questions, because I, I, I need to find a way to, uh, to approach this topic and to make it work as part of this bigger project uh, about uh, alternative ways to understand technoscience. So, um, the silk mill, uh, and this um, site which I'm going to describe now, and it's my starting point, is where I started actually um, uh, my work and my ethnographic study of these specific communities. So the silk mill was built in 1721 and was the first water-powered, mechanized silk-throwing fa factory in Britain. It transformed into Derby's Museum of Industry and History in 1974, but the, the museum fell gradually into disrepair. Underfunded, with falling visitor numbers and with many, many exhibition cases in deteriorating condition and in need of a thorough renovation. The recurring crisis of the traditional public, or say publicly funded, archive put many similar institutions under pressure. The museum closed in 2011 to undergo necessary structural works and to prepare a plan for redevelopment. The project of silk mills reconstruction started in 2013, so two years after the closure of the museum. The aim was to include stakeholders as well as the city and uh, its uh, citizens the public into a consultation process about the future of the space and uh, the future use, actually, of the space, but also the future position of the space in the broader cultural and intellectual um, environment of Derby. One of the main industrial buildings of the 15-mile World Heritage Site, the Silk Mill has a prominent position in the city of Derby and its industrial heritage. But against and despite this heavy historical role that the, buildings carry, that the building carries with it, it reopens completely empty, a site for public experimentation. 
the Remake the Museum project involves museum staff, members of the audience, and people from the community in the process of redesigning and rebuilding the museum. Only a few days ago, the Remake project actually was nominated for the Museum's Inheritance Award in the category of the Educational Initiative. The aim is the co-making of the space itself, the exhibition cases, furniture, its fittings, the research and functional rooms, and most importantly, the collections. The silk mill was equipped with a purpose-developed workshop, including multifunctional devices, such a very large format CNC router, and everybody I talked to in the, in the work uh, space, in the workshop of the museum, is very proud of this uh, machine, because basically they can produce every, um, uh, every type of uh, furniture or fitting or exhibition case they want. Um, but also it has, it has uh, smaller machines like 3D printers and laser cutters. The aim is to literally remake the museum. Silk Mill's industrial past was as turbulent as its post-industrial present. The Silk Mill changed many owners and following technological advantages in the silk throwing industry and the changing workforce, the production techniques evolved and the building was redeveloped several times. With the gradual decline of the British silk industry in the second half of the 19th century, the mill changed again and became a chemical factory, only to be destroyed a few years later in 1910 by a fire. It was fully rebuilt and remained a production site until the company moved the purpose-built <coughs> purpose -built premises in 1927. The ownership transferred to the local electricity co corporation and it became storage space and workshops until the 1970s when it was adapted for its use as the Museum of um, History and Industry of Derby. The Stone Foundation, Arches of the Silk Mill, um, I think this is the, <coughs> the, east, the eastern elevation of the Silk Mill. So this um, uh, stone foundation uh, arches, and this is the oldest picture I could find in, in, in the archives. I need to do more work on that and, and go further back. Um, so the stone, the, the, the stone foundation arches um, are the same as they were in 1721. It's probably the only remaining part of the building that it is the same still today as if it holds some kind of ontological entity that, that changed so many times, and yet each of these different ontological configurations live inside the other, the previous ones. One ontology that it is many. By becoming a museum, the silk mill, responds to its ontological configuration as a workshop that can no longer exist as such in the historic center of the city today. Equally, the workshop responds to the unexpected event of a fire that changes its use as a chemical factory. The chemical factory exists as a response to the decline of the previous silk weaving factory, which intenses the outcome 
of the attempt to establish the first modern mechanized silk throwing production site. And finally, the collapse of the museum and the birth of silk mill as an experimental space is the attempt to respond to the decline of the public archive by reflecting on its long industrial history and by remaking its contents. Here you can see the process, a, lo a very long process that lasted over uh, more than a year actually of selecting uh, the contents that will be exhibited in the future museum. And this is a very complex pro process because it is not just about selecting the actual objects but about um, how to exhibit them, what story you want the museum to, to, to tell, uh, who, which are the objects which have um, historical value, uh, which are the objects that have technological value, which are the objects that are valued by the local communities, the, the objects that are valued by the members of staff of the museum. So it, it is, um, it was and it still is an open-ended project and it's very fascinating to see the discussion about each one of these objects and how to classify and, and to assign value to them and to, in order to make the threshold from something that is non-exhibited to something that uh, should be exhibited in this new experimental space. The silk mill is an ontology in which in each one of these historical layers guides the way the others express themselves in their own materiality. <clears throat> but this expression is not determined by the previous configuration. It is rather an exit from it. Its new ontological configuration is an articulation emerging from previous ontologies. But this happens almost as a drift rather by, than by continuity or sudden rupture. There is a strong element of chance in how ontologies are constituted, a, ba a back bankruptcy of a factory owner, a fire, a technological development in an adjacent mill that forces the reorganization of production, the decline of the public archive. The different ontologies of the silk mill from its inception as the first modern factory its many transformations, the fact that it was the site of the birth of the organized trade union movement, its transformation to a chemical factory, to a workshop, to a, to a storage space, to a museum, to an experimental space, are all stacked temporary, temporarily on top of each other and materially inside each other. The constraints of previous ontologies are still active in the new ontological configurations, even if these new ontologies have evolved in unexpected ways. This is the paradox of stacked histories. They remain active forces as they, after their disappearance, but they are unable to determine the content of the later ontologies that will follow them. And there is no essentialism here. We need to conceive the ontological unity of the world, we need to conceive the ontological unity of this uh, site as one that it is void, that it is empty in its core. There is no common, common denominator, no core qualities, no transhistorical essence that holds different ontologies together. What holds them together 
is that each one of them drifts away from the previous one in unforeseeable ways, and yet it remains all, always connected to it. This is the silk mill today. So silk mill's experimental space answers uh, questions about its industrial past. One of the people heading this transformation told me that today's silk mill, silk mill is the inevitable response to Derby's long manufacturing history. Today's experimentation is, quote, necessitated, necessitated by Derby's position as a leader in advanced engineering, unquote. But how can an experimental space for redesigning a museum from the inside out and from bottom up can be a response to an ontological configuration that started 293 years earlier? What is the vision that captures the imaginaries of the people involved and what the hope? <clears throat> we will remake Africa with our own hands. This is the last sentence. I don't know if you can read it. You don't need to read it. Uh, it's the last sentence of the Maker Fair Manifesto. Uh, in Africa. It's called MFA, actually, Maker Fair Africa. Maker Fairs are self-organized events where people exhibit and engage others in their technological and scientific innovations. Paradoxically, the Maker Fair as an event and as part of a broader culture started in San Mateo, California in 2006. 195 people attended the two flagship Maker Fairs in the Bay Area and in New York in 2013. 44% uh, of them were first-timers first in these events. It is also a family event. 50% of them are attended by families. In 2013, there were, in addition to this big Maker Fairs, another 98 independently produced Maker Fairs around the world including Tokyo, Rome, uh, San Diego, Oslo, London, Newcastle, Brighton, uh, and so on. Among the dozens of maker fairs, I want to keep three in mind. Johannesburg, South Africa, 2014, where this comes from. San Mateo, California, 2006, and... Derby 2020. <coughs> so what holds together a transnational movement so diverse and so widespread? The title of the a, a 2014 publication of the Institute for Public Policy Research captures something of the imaginary of the maker movement and how it came to occupy a specific place uh, in, in, in our imagination. The March of the modern makers, an industrial strategy for the creative industries. The combination of industry and the creative industries are the key words here. When the maker movement is uh, mentioned in mainstream media, then as a way to revive manufacturing in the global north. But this revival is not just a return, but an aspiration to reaffirm material power. 
from techno libertarian um, positions. Here you can see white featuring one um, uh, very much celebrated uh, entrepreneur and open source hardware enthusiast, uh, Lemon Fried, uh, to more um, uh, conservative publications. Here you can see The Economist talking about the um, third industrial revolution. The maker movement is hailed for its potential to revive the waning material creativity. The promise of the manufacturing emerging today lies in the digitization of production, but it is the implementation of this mode of manufacturing that entails the potential for revolutionizing technoculture. It can be performed individually, here you can see a representation of this uh, image or of this vision, it can be performed individually, that is in small scale environments and it's outside of the industrial shop floor. The prospect is that it can capitalize on people's creativity, everyone's material creativity everywhere. What characterizes now this combination between creativity and manufacturing is the engagement of, of the creator in the whole production process instead of a specific part of it. Most of the people today are considered to be users, certainly most of us are users. The promise is that uh, they, we, uh, will become makers. Of course, this creative form of production relies on a form of social organization that can be found more broadly in the creative industries, such as the intense connectivity of, <coughs> of people, sharing, network, innovation, abundance of free labor. But what genuinely differentiates desktop manufacturing from other creative industries is the entanglement of materiality and creativity through the skill of craft. The assertion of the situationists that creativity and not labor is the driving force of human history seems to have been confirmed by the capture of creativity in post-industrial, post post-fordist uh, uh, regime of accumulation. Now, this capture took place by disconnecting disconnecting creativity of the material world. And it is uh, the ideas about cognitive labor and cognitive capitalism that come to describe the situation. Now, creativity, through this movement, uh, is coming back to its supposed roots, to manufacturing. In the first maker fair in the White House in 2014, the U.S. president declared America as a nation of makers. Making is in our DNA, he has supposedly, supposedly declared. In his Maker Movement Manifesto, the CEO of uh, TechSoup, a large membership chain of maker workshops uh, across the United States, repeats the same slogan, we were born to make. The location of the Detroit branch of TechShop near, De near Detroit, uh, it is not actually in Detroit, and that's quite important, I'll come back to that in a moment, uh, is emblematic, emblematic of the attempt to release these miraculous innate potentials 
for making and to harness material creativity. It is located in a 33,000 square foot facility adjacent to Ford Motor Company's production development center and closed its world headquarters in Dearborn, Michigan. The staff there told me that there is direct cross-fertilization between industrial innovation in Ford and other nearby companies and the grassroots innovation of TechSoc members. Build your dreams here. This is from, uh, as I said, it's a, it's a huge space. This is only a tiny part um, of, of um, this workshop. Uh, it is the space dedicated uh, for building larger devices. Uh, uh, <clears throat> there is a story about uh, this uh, blue uh, cover here. It supposedly covers something that uh, the uh, creators of it do not want to be visible because it might be patented and they don't want to be able for others to have access to it, which is uh, an interesting take on what's happening in the, in, in, in the maker space, uh, which is actually based on, on the opposite uh, 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 pattern, on the opposite logic, which is the free circulation of ideas in these spaces. So, uh, build your dreams here is, is the motto of TechShop, which calls itself a playground for creativity. I'm struggling to make sense of all these very different investments in the notion of making. Makers as the DNA of US manufacturers or workers or producers, promising to revive the core of its production, a project which is in a certain way or which cannot not be linked to uh, the project of re-westernizing production and of insourcing the core of the productive capabilities of the West. But then I turn to Derby, where the figure of the maker is the other to de-skilling, low-wage labor, youth unemployment, the dissolution of the social tissue of the city after the dramatic deindustrialization of East Midlands. In the, it is a local project of communal remaking. Maker Fair Africa implies a very different project. It mobilizes industrial creativity that clearly belongs to Western capitalist modernity to assert a decolonial perspective. <coughs> and across all, all this, you can find the lived experiences of makers, myself included, our intense engagement with materiality and sociality, our endlessly diverting and ordinary ways of practicing material creativity. Emeka Omafor, one of the organizers, organizers of the Maker Fair Africa, claims that making in Africa is always a situated project, depending on the specific ingenuity of the involved communities, the specific problems they are called to respond to, and to engage with the existing infrastructures in a specific location. The maker project cannot but be bound to each of the places that it travels inside Africa. There is no, ma no maker for Africa. There are different <coughs> maker fairs or maker communities inside Africa. Making can neither be global, nor universal, nor local, 
it can only be indigenous. And how else could one conceive making if not in this way? That is, as an indigenous material process that traverses and connects many different nearby or far away places and projects. Making is a practice that is involved in building and maintaining very different ontologies. From this perspective, making is seen as a contribution to a decolonial project, one that avoids building or rebuilding a universal global world, but attempts to construct plural ontologies across global space. <coughs> ontologies that are dissimilar, multiple, and heterogeneous. Marisol de la Cadena, Arturo Escobar, Walter Mignolo, Mario Blaser, and other <coughs> anthropologists, social theorists, literary theorists, refer to this world as a pluriverse. The pluriverse doesn't hold together <coughs> through a universal matrix, but through relation and dialogues between divergent worlds. But then, what is a pluriverse made of? Atoms, molecules, universes, socio-material assemblages, ecosystems, practices, relations, biotopes, processes, forms of life, animals, humans, plants, things, interactions, interactions between them, all of these or only some, or something else. More specifically, if the maker culture is not a universal one, how does it exist as the maker culture, as the maker movement? Making is always a material movement. I said already, I think it is about creating ontologies. And as such, it comes to lay upon other previously existing ontologies. Bruce Tedning, the uh, science fiction writer, says that tomorrow composts today. Ontologies are not only historically and temporally stuck, as I tried to say in the beginning about the stuck histories, but they are also practically and materially stuck. In permaculture, a practice for ecological design of non-polluting and food-growing settlements, stacking means to mimic natural forest environments in order to create food gardens. In forests, you have many different layers of plants stacked on top of each other. The canopy of giant trees, tall trees, lower trees, vines and climbers, then shrubs, and finally, the ground cover plants, grasses, roots, uh, creepers, herbaceous plants, all of them on the same space, on the same ground. Permaculture mimics this forest strategy of stacking to create food forests where different crops coexist in very limited space and reinforce their growth. I'm thinking of a similar form of ontological stacking here in my project for the makers. St stacking is about relative locations. 
how elements of an ecosystem are related to each other as they are mutually dependent and are in positions that allow them to, as to assist each other. Ontologies are stacked together topologically, never simply on top of each other, never simply just next to each other, but in continuous ways as they emerge and are related to previous ontologies. Every major space is organized in a way that allows such multiple and continuous relations to thrive. This is the heart of my project actually about the makers. How is production and this type of material creativity, uh, how does this happen in major spaces, community labs, fab labs, fab labs, hacker spaces, and so on. So that's where my project started, that's where my interest uh, started. And in all the major spaces I've been involved. Um, including the one in Leicester where I have been involved from the very beginning, actually setting up the space, but also all the others that I have um, uh, uh, visited or done research in. This is my first question, that I try to find out how people relate to the machines, which machines they use, how they use them, use them, how materials are transferred through these machines. Most of my informants in all these maker and hacker spaces uh, told me that they n almost never find all the tools they need in a maker space. Maker spaces are neither dedicated workshops nor industrial shop floors. What matters is the potential for connections to emerge by exploring the possibilities of existing devices discovering new devices that somebody brings in the hack space uh, in, by coincidence, learning and acquiring new habits and tricks uh, when dealing with specific objects <coughs> or organic matter, experimenting with materials that others use or that you might have find on a workbench just by coincidence. Watching, watching small, mundane inventions of other participants. There are many different tools, devices, things, and organisms that are in relative locations to each other so that they allow articulations of material making to be performed. As in permaculture, one can get many and very different outputs from just one single element in a forest garden. A certain material, let's say a plastic a milk bottle, uh, used as an example, can be engaged in many different ways. For example, a plastic milk bottle as material for recycling, as a container, as, as non-conductive spacer in a specific electronic projects, as moldable plastic if treated correctly, as one of the ingredients uh, for purpose-built compounds, as a material for education projects in schools about plastic and recycling. This immanent indeterminacy of use value applies not only to, mater to materials and objects found, but also to complex devices made with a specific aim. 
one of the quintessential electronic devices of the maker, maker culture is the Arduino microcontroller. This is from uh, a workshop event in, in the Leicester Hack Space, and you can see the microcontroller here. The, the actual size of the microcontroller is probably a bit smaller than the palm of my hand. So the Arduino, this open source and open hardware microcontroller, is an easily programmable uh, device that can perform many tasks in an ecology of making. It can control other devices and connect them to um, sensors, linking them together, created ad hoc unities which are necessary for many different projects. The Arduino is the interface between codes and matter and allows the digitization of material processes and the materialization of code. It is a prototypical device that characterizes the end of the information age. Son, who is a pioneer of um, commercial web design, a member of these communities, um, told me something that I think is, is um, at least for my project, was uh, eye-opening. Because I, 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 in the discussions we, we had, I said, well, if this is the information of the end of the information age, what about big data? And he says, big data, that's a quote from him, Big data is only a sign of big digitization. What comes after is something else. It is that craft, matter, and the fusion of the digital and the material are defining the era of the making movement. Everyday objects are digitized and interlinked within a web of things. I'm going to skip, I, I, I'm going to talk a bit about uh, this connection and uh, talk about the 3D printer here and then about brain and waves and how they can use to connect again material projects um, uh, with uh, cognitive um, processes. I'm going to skip because of time. So a technology of making is similar, similar to an ecological guild, a group of species that exploit the same class of environmental resources in a similar way. Ecological guilds constitute communities of mutual support where each one of the species or objects in them contributes its unique functions only to the extent that they are in relation to the other involved species and things. They don't contribute if there is not a, a relation. Uh, this is, uh, I use these images again from uh, ecologically inspired production for such uh, a way to talk about an ecological guild. This is the same garden. You can see the olive trees uh, in, in a symbiotic <coughs> or in a synergy with um, the cypress trees which uh, are used to protect them from northern winds but also are used as a fence. 
the same way uh, you can see the clover here, uh, which is used in the beginning of the season uh, to uh, uh, provide green manure, uh, nitrogen for the earth, but in the same way they, it is providing also food for the bees. Uh, actually, you cannot see the, the beehives here, but they are behind here. Uh, and uh, it is also, uh, as um, uh, they told me, green manure, clover, makes the earth fluffy. It produces fluffy earth. And uh, it is this, this image of fluffy earth that contributes to, in a synergetic way, in a symbiotic way, in creating this ecological guild, this community of species and, and uh, 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 things. Functions are uh, stuck together in order for a community to exist as a guild. In a certain sense, the art of making and hacking is about engaging in these symbiotic relations by involving things in ways that can benefit from each other. The stacking of many different functions in a small space is characteristic of the type of invention in maker cultures. But what is this logic of invention? In scientific practice, uh, Many people talk about something that is called the experimental achievement. The key event, this key event, experimental achievement that characterizes modern science is following Isabel Stengers. An achievement, an event uh, which um, designates the moment when only what has passed through thorough experimental testing and most importantly, has withstood it, it becomes a scientific fact. From this perspective, science is a very specific type of practice that enables scientists to challenge their own questions and assumptions in order to achieve a level, it is always a relative level of certainty. Only the questions that have withstood their objections can be considered scientific. But I am asking, is this the case in formal technoscience, such as cognitive science, climate science, the biosciences, soil science, neuroscience, informatics, biomedicine, geosciences? And what about distributed and mundane technoscience beyond these formal institutions that happens in spaces such as, such as the one I am describing here? Hack spaces, maker spaces, fab labs, community labs, uh, bio art projects, indigenous ecocosmologies or indigenous knowledges, self education projects. In technoscience, the experimental achievement is mediated by many different trajectories and actors already before it has taken place even before it has been formulated. In technoscience and mundane community science, what counts as invention is not primarily the individual experimental achievement that gives coherence to traditional experimental scientific practice. It is a form 
of dispersed experimentation, distributed invention power. <clears throat> what probably characterizes most of the maker projects I have observed or I have been involved uh, in is that the materials they use or the processes that they entail or the connections they rely on are often or very often defy common protocols of operation and function. Whether it is wood or plastic, metal or silicon, organic or inorganic, animal or human, making always involves ecological transversality between disparate material fields or material registers and human or non-human communities of life. This is, uh, this is an education project uh, in the hack space. The aim is to uh, think and practice uh, connecting everyday objects to the internet. You need, you need to think of different processes in order to make that happen. <coughs> the consistency of the materials is quite important. Conductivity, circuits, digitization, electricity, the indeterminacy of objects, and I can say that by having participated in many of them in the meantime, I mean, for, for the kids that are part of them, using uh, a banana or an apple or, 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 uh, or other fruits is the most exciting moment in order to enter into this world. But it is through this indeterminacy of the object by, by actually shaking the, the understanding of what an object is and reconnecting it, rebuilding, translating, but not in, in, um, through language or through concepts, but as a, as a form of ecological uh, transversality, meaning <coughs> and practices of different objects into other objects is the key for that. Ecological transversality mobilizes an imaginary that is very different to the single purpose oriented logic of traditional manufacturing. This imaginary involves that each object, animal or relation can have many effects and many purposes inside a techno-scientific guild. In the practice of making, new materials acquire new qualities and new processes emerge through these new qualities. And the main process through which this happens is what people in this uh, uh, environment call forking, bifurcation. You always rely, rely on what existed before in order to develop the next step. And then you split, you redirect. Innovation is distributed invention power because it happens, again, non, not through some sudden uh, novelty, and much more through hacking, stretching, knitting, weaving, tweaking, recombining materials. 
These are synthesizers used by a group it's called Dirty, uh, Dirty Electronics, and uh, they participate uh, in, in, in um, Leicester Hackspace. Uh, they create synthesizers from many different materials, and um, the, their aim with these uh, synthesizers are, is to produce noise that is controlled through the body. So they create, they use everyday materials, nails, for example, um, to um, allow the body to interact directly with the synthesizer in a much more direct, almost phenomenological way, or embodied way, uh, in order to produce um, noise. These noises are recorded, assembled together, to create uh, certain pieces. But there is this continuity of the body through other material, um, uh, through specific material uh, objects, which are usually collected, are everyday objects, um, that create the electronic instrument. There is not much translation in this uh, process. At least there is not this form of translation that we know from uh, other projects or from other fields of life. So as much as translation is crucial for the project of ecological transversality, it captures only a small part of the exchanges between the communities, actors, substances, species involved in such a space. Rather, than through translation, communication happens through involuntary permutations between organisms or substances that attract each other. Making is always located in mundane interactions and unintentional encounters across indigenous ontologies. This is the gift economy of the movements of matter and cross-species action. The makers' worlds always contaminate each other laterally, never directly. It is as if we have something of a drifting matter. That's the end of my talk. Okay, thank you.